Hey everyone, how is it going on this amazing Monday? I love it'll be Tuesday for all of you when you get this recording uh, for this podcast episode uh, for the Ball and Chain podcast. Uh, I am your host, Mark Thomas, as always, coming to you from uh, helicopter-filled uh, West Hollywood. Uh, if you hear any helicopters in the background, my apologies. They love to fly around here and make a lot of noise for absolutely zero reason whatsoever. So I uh, appreciate everyone's understanding in case you do happen to hear that. Um, but uh, we will uh, digress and move on here and not uh, worry about that. Hopefully it's not too distracting. Uh, yeah, so just a couple of updates. We, as I mentioned on the pod last week, we are in the final stages of our Nevada gaming license application process for Zen Sports, which I am spooked about. Uh, we have our first hearings with the Nevada Gaming Control Board this week and the final Final hearings uh, the third week of August, uh, getting our tech certification done as well. And uh, we are hopeful to be accepting bets in Nevada come the first night of football on September 9th. Uh, so very stoked about that. My brewers are crushing it as they have been uh, still on the euphoria from the Bucks winning their uh, first title in my lifetime and second title in 50 years. And uh, Rogers is back all is well in the world with that. And hopefully the Packers make another Super Bowl run. So I am excited for today's guest because uh, I've known him uh, for about a, about a year and a half. And uh, he is an investor, actually an angel investor in Zen Sports. And he has been a very prolific angel investor across a few different syndicates out there. And uh, just an all around awesome, uh, likable guy that I'm excited to have on the pod. Uh, so without further ado, let's welcome Mr. Steve Walsh. How are you today, Steve? Hey, buddy. How you doing, man? I'm excellent. So thanks for having me. Yeah. Are you calling us from your uh, beach house uh, in uh, Massachusetts? I am just off the coast of Massachusetts, a place called Plum Island. So uh, nice. beautiful place, especially this time of year. Of course, you probably don't want to be here in February. Wait, so do you have to take like a bridge or a, some or a ferry or something to get to where your house is? There is a bridge. It's a small bridge, cut like 50 yard bridge to get over, but it is a barrier island. Yeah, there's only one way in, one way out. Wow. Wow. Really? So... Uh, so you're surrounded by water then. I mean, so in the wintertime, is it is it completely frozen over or? I mean... <laughs> the storms out here in the wintertime are pretty epic. So like we have to have things like generators and stuff because you lose power out here. Hurricanes are fun. Um, so wow. it's one of the, one of the downsides of living at the beach, but comes with the territory. Right, right, right. Uh, and you just moved from like kind of more further inland to where you're at right now, just like early this year, right? Yeah, we live. We had a house at, uh, just outside of Boston, and you know the pand- what the pandemic has told everybody. I think is, you know, less less stuff, more experiences and people. And once everybody went remote, and with what I do, I can do it anywhere with a laptop and a Zoom account. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why don't we just go live at the beach full time? It's where we want to be, and uh, it's been nice. great. We're very excited, very fortunate, and uh, we have a lot of fun at the same time. Amazing, amazing. So I want to get into your background for everybody in the audience that doesn't know it, um, because I think you've you've done a lot of very, very interesting things over the years. Um, why don't we start pre, uh, you know, startup investing? We'll get into your startup investing endeavors here in a minute. But let's let's start first with kind of what you did. You were at Cox Communications for seven years. You were at Comcast for ten years. Um, kind of just give us the one to two minute overview of what you did at those two companies because you were there for 17 years um, and then how you transitioned from that over into angel investing. Sure, well, thank you. So, you know, I spent, I like to call myself a recovering operator. So I spent about 25 years working for tech companies. You mentioned two of the biggest that I work for and helped them build uh, business services units to sell to business customers. So at Comcast, uh, we built a business services unit from inception to about a $10 billion business over my tenure there. And we did a similar thing at Cox, although on a smaller scale. 
And then after 25 years of it, about three years ago, I'm like, okay, I'm tired of this. Let's go do something else. So I left that and decided to get into early stage venture and working with outstanding companies like Zen Sports. So it was a great run. I had a blast. I worked with some amazing people, did some unbelievable stuff. But I looked at sort of early stage founders and felt I had something to offer. One was capital, which was kind of nice. I've heard they could use that. Um, I had a pretty gigantic network because if you can see from my picture, I'm a gray haired guy. So I know a lot of people. And the last thing I knew how to do, Mark, was how to grow and scale fast growing companies. And when I looked at early stage founders, I'm like, well, I think founders can use all of those things. So why don't I just go help founders win? And like it happened with you and I, I started to invest in early stage companies, meet founders that were doing awesome things, take my background and my experience and help them with, I like to call it all things required to help founders win. Sometimes that's capital. Sometimes that's business development work or my network. Um, it's anything they need to make sure they're successful. And I just, I've had a tremendous amount of fun doing it. It's been humbling, exciting, nerve wracking all at the same time. And I get to see what the next five to 10 years of the world's going to look like through someone else's eyes and to play along and go for the ride. It's really a, a, a very humbling and exciting way to make a living. Yeah, for sure. So you got into angel investing in 2019. Yep. Uh, you're a member of a couple of different syndicates, one on AngelList, one with Launch. Um, so do you invest out of both? And it looks like you've invested in a lot of companies. So yeah, I mean, do you invest actively out of both? Um, you know, what, what does that kind of look like from a uh, you know, a scouting or a due diligence standpoint to decide what you ultimately invest in. Why don't you walk us through the journey of how you got involved into both Angelus and Launch, um, and then you know what you look for in a deal, and then what that deal process looks like. Yeah, so so I was a public market investor for a long time, and I still am. But I wanted to take my public market investing experience, which, and my thesis is pretty simple: it's dollar cost average across a diverse portfolio over time, and you'll do well. So I wanted to apply that to private companies like Zen Sports, but I didn't have a history doing that. So I had cash and I knew how to public market invest, but I wanted to learn. So I approached some of the biggest names in the industry, guys that you know, like Jason Calacanis that runs Launch, uh, the guys at Flight VC, you know, uh, Gil Pacina, Zach Kalias, Kalias Capital. And I was just like, look, I'm relatively new at this. I want to learn. And guys like Jason are great, right? Because he's like, hey, read my book, listen to my podcast. I'm on CNBC every day. But the funny thing was, it was a great way to learn and you can watch deal flow and you can start to read deal memos. So I started to do that. And then I started to meet with founders and most of my deals were going to demo days or pitch pet competitions that like companies like Launch would run to meet founders. And then the more you do that and you start writing small checks across a diverse portfolio. Well, as you do more of that, I went from looking at you know one to two deals a month to now I probably look at 10 to 15 deals a week. And like anything wow. else, Mark, it becomes muscle memory, right? Yeah. The more you do it, the better you get. And you start to learn what to look for. And I developed a pretty solid thesis around what I liked. And what I liked was companies that were post-product. I didn't do idea stage because it was too hard to get them from zero to one. Post-revenue, they had to be getting revenue. And for me, that was like 10 to 100,000 a month was my sweet spot. They had to be growing double digits. If you grew 5% last year, I'm not your guy. And they had to have a badass founder doing something really hard. I just, I can't stress that enough. I looked at it and said, I can't tell you who the next Facebook's going to be, but I can tell you when I see a founder that's literally going to get kicked in the teeth and fall down and get up and say, let's go do that again. That was fun. And yeah, you, go ahead. 
No, you go ahead. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's what I love. And the more I started to do that, the flywheel started to take effect and I started to be great companies and doubled down on the winners. And three and a half years later, that's turned into 55 portfolio companies. 25 have raised multiple rounds. 12 have gotten to A. Probably another six will get to A this year. And I've had two exits. Um, so not a complete body of work, but the flywheel's working and I'm having a shit ton of fun. That's awesome. So I think it's interesting. You said, you know, kind of what you said about getting kicked in the teeth and saying, Hey, that's fun. Let's go do it again. I would almost hundred percent concur that the number one trait that successful founders have to have is resiliency, um, resiliency, resiliency slash determination, because this industry from uh, in the tech industry, I mean, is so cutthroat. It's ruthless. You've got a billion things that can go wrong at any one point in time that, uh, you know, if, if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. Um, sure. And as you mentioned, you're trying to go after f- founders and companies that are tackling hard problems. By definition, if they're hard problems, uh, there's going to be a lot of roadblocks, a lot of barriers, a lot of um, issues that come up. And you have to have the right mental makeup as a founder to get through all those issues uh, because it's just not for the faint of heart. I mean, most people, one of the reasons they take, you know, kind of nine to five or steady jobs with a steady paycheck and so forth is they're okay with the types of challenges that if they don't work out well, you know what, uh, that's fine. They move on to the next task or the next project in that company, but it's not like they lose their paycheck or it's not like the company goes under. Certainly the most C-level, you know, folks at, at bigger companies have to deal with that, but, you know, kind of the regular rank and file employees don't. And so I think that really is actually kind of what separates founders from traditional, uh, you know, regular employees. Um, and I don't mean even employees in startups. I mean, employees at much larger, say fortune 500 companies is that they just don't want to deal with that risk. They don't want to deal with that anxiety of uncertainty of what may or may not happen. They don't want to be like, Oh shit, I need to go out and raise $2 million. And if I don't, we're done. Um, you know, a lot of people don't like that pressure. I personally like it because it forces me to, uh, buckle down, work hard. Um, I like the challenge of it. I also like the, I have a, I, I personally have a very deep fear of failure. And so like one of the things this is that with Zen Sports, for example, I did raise a small friends and family round of a couple hundred thousand before we did even launch just when we had the idea, just because I wanted that healthy pressure from day one that I couldn't let these people down. Like I did not want to lose their money, no matter what, right. I don't want to lose somebody else's money. And so, um, you know, looking for that in founders is, 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 I think super important. So what are some of the, so you obviously invest in jet sports. What are some of the other types of companies? Um, if you don't want to name names, it's fine. If you do, that's great too. Um, but what are some of the other types of companies that you've invested in? Cause it's a, it's a pretty good laundry list. I mean, it's gotta be like 30 to 40 companies here. 55. 55. Woo. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's look, man, I'm real fortunate. It's um, I, here's a good way to describe it, Mark. And if you look at my portfolio, I think you'll see this. I love anything that democratizes anything. So I love anything that gives more access of more things to more people. So that would include FinTech and the blockchain, which gives more access to money to the world. It would include health tech, which gives more access of healthcare to the world. EdTech, making education easier for remote students and less expensive through things like ISAs. So those are the things, and SaaS companies, because they have a flywheel effect of making access to goods and services better for individuals and companies. So those are things that I'm real passionate about. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at my portfolio, you'll see companies that do that, things that give more access of more people, things to more people. So, you know, Zen obviously is, you know, the thing about Zen is you guys touch so many areas, right? 
you're a fintech company, but you're also a yeah. gaming company, but you're also on the blockchain and you deal with crypto. Like there's so right. many different elements of Zen that just speak to me and it's why I was so excited about it. Yeah, um, but it all ties together too. And it's one, you don't want to also be trying to do more than you can. But if, if you if you do a lot where it all fits in together well, that can be oh, pretty it's magical. magic. Yeah, it's magic. If the fact that that you're able to tie all the things that Zen's doing together and in an elegant mobile app that makes peer-to-peer gaming just next level it's just it's a no-brainer and and time that along with the fact that every state in the united states in the next five years is going to have legalized sports betting right i mean the timing could not be better for a product like this so i look for founders that are doing hard things founders that can find a network effect um and if you look at my portfolio there's just some companies that i think are doing that you know some of my guys in my portfolio the guys like the guys at round league x that are doing it with roundups into digital assets or the guys at Prize Out that are helping, uh, you know, consumers have choice when it comes to digital gift cards and ad tech. Um, so I've got some, and then a bunch of Jason's companies that are doing some really hard stuff, like Cafe X, which is taking robotics and replacing baristas right. with automated coffee machines in airports and buildings. So um, just some fun stuff that I just think people are tackling really hard problems. And uh, it's really fun to get in at the early stages. It's, but you said it, Mark. The founders have to be, I don't want to say weird, right? They have to be a little bit nuts to want to do this and to put everything on the line. And I really look for that more than anything. Like when I met you, I just knew you were just going to run through brick walls for your company because you just, you had this, not reckless abandon, but you had this, I'm going to win and there is no second place and we're going to win the day. And I think that's what it takes. And like my friend Drew at Roundly, when I met him, when he was pitching me on his company, I said, you guys have been around for like two years. How'd you bootstrap the company? He's like, oh, I sold my house to fund the company. I'm like, I'm sorry? He's like, I sold my house <laughs> to fund the company. I said, stop pitching. I'm in. I don't care what the valuation is. I don't care about the rest of the deck. I'm in. Because I so, want to do business with people that do that stuff. So does not taking a paycheck for 50, yes, five, zero months qualify? <laughs> Absolutely, man. That's, but that's what you want. Right. That's exactly what you want. And I look at that and go, that's someone that says the business is more important than me individually. It has to survive. That's what it takes, Mark. Yeah. And so, I mean, just like, I hate to, I'm not trying to make this about me, but like just to kind of piggyback off that. So I took all the profits uh, from uh, my last exit. Uh, which wasn't a huge exit. It was a small exit, but uh, we did all make money, which was good. Uh, took all the profits from that and either invested in his end sports or use it to live off of. Um, I put uh, 300,000 of my own money into the company, uh, went 50 months without a paycheck. Uh, failure is not, almost all my net worth is in this company. Failure is not an option at this point. <laughs> right. I love it's, it. Mark, it's, it's the reason work. I've invested three times in your company because I just, I see that. And I see that in everybody you surround yourself with, which that's really what it takes. You got to surround yourself with really good people to build a holy crap company. Yeah. And and I think that little weirdness or quirkiness factors also, uh, well, I don't think that has to always be a given. You find that it ends up being kind of somewhat true because like you just said, your normal average everyday person is just not going to do this. I mean, they're not going to go on this journey. Um, you got to be a little effed up, you know, to, in a good way, uh, to, to want to do some of these things and to run through the brick walls, like you mentioned, and to, you know, deal with no, 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 no. And to, you know, try and convince someone that's got a nice 
paycheck from Google or Facebook to come join your company for half the salary and <laughs> all I mean, Mark, other does anybody kind of really think that Elon Musk has all his marbles? I mean, no, come on. Of course. The guy literally had a huge exit with PayPal, could have sat back and, and relaxed for the rest of his life. And he goes, right. oh, let's go build the largest electric car company in the world. Oh, and at the simultaneously, let's go build a rocket ship. I mean, come on. Yeah, that would exactly. be a little nuts. Yeah, no, totally, 100%. So why don't we flip that script for a second then? And what are some things that you really try to, like, I know what you gravitate towards, but are there any things as you get onto, say, a pitch or a, a deal call or a meeting with an entrepreneur where you go, whoa, 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 red flag, this is not going to work out? Any kind of characteristics either about the company or the person or or anything like that where you, where you definitely are like afterwards, nope, I can't invest in that? Yeah, I'll give, that's a great question, Mark. So I'll give you a couple that I just that just drive me nuts. So every pitch I've ever seen has a slide when you get into the financial projections and it looks up and to the right. No, no <laughs> deviation, right? It's just up and to the right. And I'm like, wow, I've never seen that slide before. And you can just throw it out because everything outside of the next 12 months is irrelevant. In I fact, agree. you might even argue anything out of the next six months until the next raise is irrelevant. Right. So I look at that and I go, okay, what are you going to do in the next 12 months? What's the growth rate month over month for the next 12 months? And what'd you do the last six months? And I want to really look at that. And it's the hockey stick so big that you go, unless something really happens important, like for example, in your case, getting the Nevada gaming license, that's a massively important event that could change the trajectory substantially in the second half of the year for Zen Sports. That would make sense to me. But if someone doesn't have an event like that, that's going to take place to make that hockey stick go, I kind of call bullshit. The other thing is, I I like to ask founders, where are you struggling? What are the areas you need help? Because you know this, Mark, you've built multiple companies. No founder has everything taken care of. It's impossible. And when I met you, you knew where you needed help, which is how we started doing business. You said, I really want to nail this Nevada gaming thing. I want to expand in the US. And guys like you have contacts in the industry that can help me. Let's do business together. You understood a need and you found people like me and some of the other folks in your team, like Stephen St. Marie, to help you do that. So I always look for a founder that can say, hey, I've got a lot of this nail, but here are some areas I really could use some help because nobody has it all nailed. And a founder that can't admit that is a red flag for me. Right, right. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, because no way does everybody have everything under control. Nothing is 100% rosy. I mean, maybe 50% is working out as you you know, what it planned. The other 50% is on fire uh, and is, is just, you know, kind of a, a dumpster fire in a lot of ways, uh, but you're figuring Mark, out- you mentioned something fly. else that I think is really important. Like you said, you did a friends and family round, you put 300,000 of your own money into Zen. I asked those questions explicitly of founders. How, have you done a friends and family round? Mm-hmm. How much of your own money do you have in this? Because to me, that's signaling. If they're not willing to do any of that, if they don't have skin in the game or haven't brought their inner circles close to them, to participate, that's a really big red flag for me as well. Yeah. And I mean, maybe for younger founders in their 20s, maybe they don't have a lot of capital, capital, but at least you're right. I agree with you that at least they've gone out and convinced, you know, 10 of their friends to put in 10K each or something like that, right? Everyone knows some people that have money, um, right. even if it's not yourself or even if you're not at that point in your career. I mean, I was fortunate enough to have some money from the um, from the resale exit, but uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, and, and look, I feel, I feel it's a muscle. Like if you can't, if you can't, you know, you know, big borrow and steal all legally, of course, you know, in a way that convinces people to join you for your ride, you know, you're not going to make it very far. And that same goes on the, on the employee and the co-founder side. If you can't 
convince a co-founder of your vision and for them to join you, and you can't convince the early stage employees to join you, how are you possibly going to be able to sell you know, an enterprise software solution to somebody or convince a million consumers to start buying your product? You're not going to be able to do that. And that's that's actually where I see a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, get tripped up when they're doing their fundraising is they just can't freaking tell a story to save their life. And I've been, you know, kind of seeing a lot of this on social media lately where, you know, a lot of investors are saying it's almost their number one thing that they look for is can this founder uh, tell a great story and share a great vision and do it succinctly and cleanly and clearly so everyone in the room gets it? Because if they can't do this, there's no way they're going to be able to raise more money, hire more employees, sell into whatever customers or strike whatever partnerships. Um, or when it comes time for an exit to be able to work on an M&A deal, they're just not going to be able to do those things. Um, and if you yourself can't do them as a founder, then you better damn well go get a co-founder who can do those things. Absolutely correct. Absolutely. It's it's all storytelling, Mark. It's all, right. whether it's raising money, running the business, hiring employees, recruiting, it's all storytelling. Totally. 100% agree with you on that. So got to ask a question. What are your thoughts of the insane valuations that are out there today on the seed safe side of things? <laughs> Uh, it's interesting. Like if I have another founder raising two on 30, I think I'm going to throw up. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've to the point, Mark, it's I've actually looked at, you know, one of the things the pandemic has done, it's been a great equalizer because it's opened up a lot of these, I'll call them other ecosystems outside of the Valley, which have great value and reasonable valuations. The guys at Roundly are in Richmond, Virginia. A um, lot of stuff going on in Austin. I'm spending a lot of time talking to companies in Austin, Texas. Miami has become Miami. this hotbed yep. for early stage companies. And then there are like these other pockets in Atlanta. Um, no, New York's always, always got some great companies. I'm even finding stuff overseas in Europe, Australia. I've looked at some deals in Israel for the first time. Um, so COVID has really been the great equalizer and the valuations in some of these secondary ecosystems are more realistic in the Valley. It's like every pitch I get is a 23-year-old founder that's building the next Facebook that wants two on 30. That's what I see every day. And I'm like, could someone be original? <laughs> so two on 30, and what kind of traction does a two on 30 raise look like? Not, not, not as much as you would think. Like they, they're like, they have $10,000 a month in revenue. I'm like, hmm. you've barely started. Like if somebody has a million dollar ARR, I get it. That makes sense to me. Sure. I'll use a good example. One of my companies I just invested in is, is originally a German company. They now have Delaware status here. Um, they had $100,000 a month in revenue. They were going to do $1.7 million this year in revenue. They were raising one on six. That, to me, I was like, that's a, what a great idea. Yep. And oh, by the way, seven-time founder, seven-time founder who had yep. three exits, including building a unicorn. And he was raising one on six. And I looked at it and go... I brought that to my friends. They were like tripping over themselves to invest in. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? Is that, you know, if you can be even somewhat reasonable in this kind of market, you're going to, you're going to close the deal a lot faster. And as you know, me, I always, almost, I should say almost always optimize for speed over any other characteristic in a deal, because the longer I'm screwing around fundraising, uh, the less I'm focused on building and growing the business. I would much rather give up a few extra percentage points um, and get a deal done uh, two, three months faster than save a little bit on dilution, but take longer. Because I know that every minute I'm spending on growing the business is insanely valuable to the future valuation versus, okay, I got optimized for valuation, got optimized for valuation. And look, I think there's also times to optimize for valuation. Like, you know, um, you know, there's the, 
you know, we've kind of not optimized for valuation as much so far for Zen Sports, but, you know, in future rounds, we probably will optimize more. And I think that's fine as you get later. But as you're a seed stage company doing 10, 20K a month in revenue, uh, so, you know, basically, I don't know, $120,000, $250,000 a year in uh, in revenue. I mean, yeah. I just think anything north of uh, eight is really pretty unreasonable. Yeah. In my, my sweet opinion. spot market is like four to 10 million. If I see a company yeah. doing that revenue on a four to $10 million valuation, yes, right. it's usually a good deal. Correct. I agree a, a billion percent on that. Um, and so what, let me ask you this. So a lot of folks maybe listening to this are not quite as familiar with what the syndicate, uh, not, not just the syndicate as in Jason's syndicate, but any syndicate, what a syndicate mm -hmm. process looks like, what that exactly means. They probably understand it's a network of investors, but maybe not much more than that. So how is investing as a syndicate different than if you just wrote a direct check yourself into a company? It's a really good question because I've done both, right? And what a, what a direct check or a direct investment allows you to do is obviously have direct relationships with the founder. But typically, the downside of direct investing is founders, and I'll use you as a good example. If someone's going to make a direct investment in Zen, you're probably not going to want to deal with someone writing a five or $10,000 check. You're going to want them to be preferably $50,000 or more, maybe $25,000 in a rare case. But typically, a direct investment minimum is at least $50,000. Well, some people say, I don't want to do that. I want to make a lot of investments and I don't want my average check to be 50. I'd like my average check to be five or 10. Mm -hmm. What a syndicate allows you to do is a syndicate is a group of investors, individuals that have come together to say, we're going to join the syndicate. And the syndicate has run by a GP, a general partner who pays for the setup of the syndicate, the LLC, pays the fees with a platform. AngelList is probably the biggest syndicate platform in the world. Thank God Naval Ravenkot created it. And what the general partner does is he brings a group of his friends together who are LPs, limited partners in the syndicate, and they can join the syndicate for free. So it doesn't cost anything to be a member. But what it allows you to do is look at any deals that that syndicate puts up on the platform. So the syndicate puts up a deal on the platform. They write a deal memo, which explains what the company does. Their revenues probably has a deck included, maybe some previous rounds if they've raised it and how much they've raised. And then there's an offering and it will say this company's raising a million on $6 million. They're using a convertible note. Here are the terms, maybe a 20% discount. Anybody interested, the minimum investment from the syndicate, it's typically $1,000. Some syndicates have it at 2,000. It just depends, but it's usually a thousand to $2,000 minimum. And you can invest up to whatever dollar amount you want. And they can have up to 250 investors on that single note. And the benefit to the company that's doing the syndicate is that it's only one name on the cap table. So it's really clean. Syndicates can usually make decisions pretty quickly and they can raise a lot of money in a pretty short period of time. So if you have 250 investors, each putting in $2,000, you just raised almost a half a million dollars and you probably did it in a few days. And it, mm -hmm. it's a really good way to make small investments in a broad spectrum of, of investments. The only downside I will say around syndicates is that because you get the benefit of using this platform and making such small investments, you have to pay what's called carry, which is basically a percentage of your profits. And the standard carry is 20% to the syndicate lead. So if you invest $100,000 or so let's say you make $100,000 off an investment, the syndicate lead is going to take 20,000 of that investment as their carry before paying you the net proceeds. That's the only downside. But if you can get in deals that you normally wouldn't get in otherwise, and you can write really small checks and diversify, 
I would argue it's a great way to get into the angel investing space so you don't have to write big checks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for those that just don't have the ability to write a 25 or 50K check directly into a company, uh, and you're, you're right, I'd say the minimum usually for a direct check is 25. Every once in a blue moon, you'll get a 10K uh, opportunity that'll come across your way direct. But um, yeah, I mean, not everyone has 25,000 per company because if they want to they want to invest across 25 to 50 different companies. I mean, that ends up being, you know, quite a bit of money at the end of the day that they invest if the minimum check size that they're writing is 50. Whereas if the minimum check size that they're writing is five, you know, now they're only looking at a total of two or $300,000 in exposure versus two or 3 million, um, you know, by being able to write a smaller check. So I would say um, the, there is maybe one other slight downside to investing as a syndicate. And that is kind of what you hinted at, which is the benefit to the entrepreneur but the downside to the uh, syndicate investor is kind of that direct access, right? You can't not necessarily always email the founder and, and, and ask what you want. Although I'm very responsive to that and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but you, because you're not on the cap table, you don't hold information rights. Uh, you don't yourself individually hold pro rata rights. The syndicate does. Um, but there's things like that. So you, you you are truly, truly passive in a lot of ways. I mean, angel investors in general are pretty passive, um, but you're really passive as a syndicate investor because you're you're just you're not you're not technically yourself tied to that company's cap table. You know what a great way, Mark, I found now that I've been doing this uh, a couple of years is create value as a syndicate member. And there's the really the best way to do that is go find great founders that are gonna raise and doing amazing things and go bring them to syndicate leads that you feel comfortable with and that you like. Two things will happen. One, the syndicate lead will start to realize you're more than just an LP in his fund. And more importantly, the best syndicate leads will pay you carry. They'll actually pay a percentage of their carry to you because you sourced that deal for them. And I found that by doing that, you not only get a leg up on everybody else in the syndicate, they also give you access to the founders because you already know the founders. So you don't have to worry about this. Is the syndicate league going to get pissed if I talk to the founder because you brought the founder to the table. So I've done that in a lot of deals where I actually scout for probably half a dozen different syndicates, a couple of VC firms where I actually talk to founders all the time. And if it's a really good deal, I'll bring it to my syndicate leads who will then share carry uh, if they syndicate the deal. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And the, the converse though is, is interesting because I will get the kind of occasional scraggler uh, investor that invested via syndicate and they'll come to me asking why I haven't sent them directly to themselves um, updates. And I my response is always, hey, I'm happy to add you to the update list. I love you know telling updates to everybody, as many people as possible. But I wouldn't have by, by default known you were an investor in the syndicate because I don't get a right. list of syndicate members when the syndicate when the syndicate lead invests. And I've had I've had a couple of angel investors say, well, why am, not, why am I not getting these updates? Because you're not an actual direct investor in the company. I didn't even know you were there. I, I'll add you now as an up as a as a as a to our you know, uh, information and monthly update uh, investor email list. But it's just kind of like, hey, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known. And I think sometimes maybe they don't realize um, yeah. that maybe that they're not like actually directly in the cap table or something. So you sometimes get that, but that's pretty rare. I get maybe one of those, one or two of those a quarter. It's not really a big deal. And I just add them to the list uh, and then we're good to go. And it's nice because then they get to, you know, they get the email updates and who knows, maybe they want to share it with other people in their network too. Uh, I have, we have no secrets for the most part. <laughs> so we're pretty open book and transparent uh with regards to uh updates and that that matters a lot for us um it's funny because i've actually had prospective investors tell me i get better uh uh, uh 
updates, monthly updates to investors and some of their portfolio companies. But I, awesome. I really, I really care about that. Like, and I, I'm kind of curious, you know, so, you know, what, what do you see with regards to, you know, investor updates or information updates? So I try to send out um, at least once a month, sometimes I'll even be twice a month if we have some really, you know, important news or great things going on, but a minimum of once a month um, to make sure that everyone knows the good, the bad, and the ugly at all times, not just existing investors that are, you know, that have invested already, but also prospective investors, because I believe in, you know, the lines, not dots theory that Mark Sister talked about many years ago. It's about getting to know people over time. Um, you know, it just, it just makes for a better relationship. It makes for an easier conversation when it's time to fundraise. So I want everybody, anybody, you know, that we have been kind of, uh, that is on our investor email update list, including prospective investors, uh, to be getting our, our updates every month, just like as if they were an investor in our company. Um, and that, I think, kind of endears uh, us to them and so forth. So, what you know, do you, do you see most founders are good about updates? I mean, I'm just, I mean, I, again, that's what we do here and what I do, but I'm kind of curious, you know, how, how good other entrepreneurs are with you on that. Um, I, I, I would say the best founders give updates. Um, and, you know, to me, it just speaks to their attention to detail if they don't. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that, giving updates is as much about your current investors to telling them what you need and how they can help. It's also setting the table for the next round of investors for people downstream, because you have to, if you've ever read the book, dig your well before you're thirsty. Um, this is all about setting the table for your next round. So if I'm going to go approach and let's just use some names that people know, if you're going to approach Andreessen or Sequoia, well, the time to approach them is not when you just opened the round last week. The time to approach them is probably a year before you ever yeah. want to talk to them. Exactly. And you want them to be on your update. So someone at the firm sees your update and says, have you been keeping an eye on Zen Sports? These guys are killing it right now. They're about to get licensed in the state of Nevada. So, and when you finally open your round, they understand, they have context, they're excited. Um, exactly. I would say out of my portfolio, 50% of the founders do a really good job. And I would include that in, you, in that group. 25% um, of the founders do it once a quarter, which is nice, but not ideal. And then 25% of the founders, Mark, they always have a reason why the update isn't out. They always a day late, dollar short. And the funny thing is when you look at my portfolio and the companies that are killing it and the ones that are struggling, it's usually the ones that are struggling that don't have a crisp process for updates because they're not constantly back in front of their investors asking for things. I think that's a big miss on a founder's part. You should sure. be communicating how the business is doing but you should also be asking your investors for help. Their job is to help you grow the business. And that could be talent, customers, relationships, whatever it is, you should always have an ask for your investors, as opposed to here's the update, your money's doing fine. Yep. And it's funny because both Jason Calcanis and Paul Graham, and I'm sure many other investors, they have this same thought that, you know, the best founders and the companies that are doing the best always seem to have uh, updates on a frequent, on a consistent cadence uh, that they send out. Um, yeah. And the companies that are not doing well, don't. And I'm, I, it's interesting. I, want, I, I think Paul Graham actually has a blog post on this from a long time ago that basically said he thinks that founders that don't get into that cadence of sending it out monthly, um, you know, that's one of the reasons maybe they don't perform because they don't feel that pressure to go back and tell them bad news. And if you, again, kind of going back to that fear of failure and that healthy pressure, if you have that pressure to send out a monthly update, then you're going to be crushing it, you know, uh, from the prior update to that new one uh, over the course of that month, because you don't want to have to send out a bad email. You want to send right. out a good email. So you're going to be continuously busting tail and doing the right things. Whereas those that don't feel any pressure to, you know, uh, send out any updates or even once a quarter, that's just not enough. 
uh, they are, I don't know. I mean, maybe they just, you know, whatever, um, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not working as hard or they don't really know what they're doing or things are just going really bad and they're trying to hide from it. Um, so I, I definitely, I would agree with that. Um, now, sometimes there's also, there, there, once in a blue moon, there might be an exception. Like, for example, like we were so, so knee deep with all the Nevada gaming license stuff, legal stuff, turning around paperwork as fast as humanly possible, um, you know, in, in the most recent months. Um, I think uh, there was a, maybe a five week gap from one update to the next, but that was a big deal, like one extra week. Um, you know, um, it's not like that big of a deal, but I try to always around the between the fifth and the 10th of the month, uh, send out the most recent update. Um, and then as as new other things happen along the way or as other milestones might come up that are in between updates, um, you know, I'll send those out, too. So sometimes it might even be more than once a month, um, but definitely right. always once a month. I think that's critical. So I, I totally agree, man. Totally agree. Yeah. So you talked about like, you know, seeing, uh, you know, good deals in other markets like Austin and Miami. And I can tell you firsthand as somebody that lived in Silicon Valley and San Francisco for 19 years and recently moved to LA. Um, and we're also kind of, you know, toying with the idea of possibly going to Miami too. Um, I, I, I see firsthand that just the, the sheer migration out of Silicon Valley and even California in general into a lot of other cities. And you see or you see founders that don't see the need to move to Silicon Valley or California, and they stay wherever they might be, whether it be Atlanta or Boston or whatever it might be. So I think that's really interesting. Obviously, a big part of that is due to COVID. Um, you know, so kind of do you see any trends there, you know, with regards to it? I mean, you see, you know, you said you mentioned you're seeing deals from those places. Is it growing? Is it is it the same number of deals that you see out of California? You know, what is a geographical, you know, startup landscape from your point um, for the deals that you're seeing? Um, I mean, I think just the sheer volume in California is always going to keep it as number one. But uh, what I'm seeing is a lot of the early stage stuff is going to Austin and Miami, be mainly because, Mark, they can't afford to live in California. The tax rate kills them. And the ecosystems being built in Miami and Austin and the infrastructure being put around it by the mayors and the governors and the tax advantages and the incubators and the ecosystems being built, it's just so founder friendly. Oh, and people go, oh, and I don't have to spend a million and a half or $2 million for a 500 square foot apartment. Um, that's what I see. And because of that, you know, like in Austin, I do some deals with the guys at the Capital Factory, which have just created this awesome ecosystem for early stage companies. They give them resources, they give them space, they give them access to investors. And um, they're at really good valuation. So I, I find a lot of great stuff being done there. And Miami is just exploding. I had a call today with the Florida Venture Fund, which a fund made up of 1,600 LPs specifically focused on Florida's ecosystem and investing in early stage tech companies there. I'm like, oh. what an awesome thing. Well, awesome can, yeah, I, well, you know, I love Miami. Uh, for those in the audience that don't know that I do. Um, and uh, one of the things that I love about Miami is, um, I mean, all the things that you talked about, but I do believe you get a little bit um, of a cross between San Francisco, the best of both worlds between San Francisco and LA, um, but done in a better way. What I mean by that is, is you got the downtown Brickell district that feels very much like Soma in San Francisco. You have yeah. the warm beaches and weather that you get in a place like LA. But just as importantly, you touched on this, is the housing situation and the taxes and the just overall ecosystem friendliness of the leaders there. For example, the San Francisco leaders, board of supervisors and mayor basically shun tech companies and blame them for everything wrong in the city. 
what are they doing in Florida and especially in Miami? Welcoming startups saying you are our, you are our future. We we want you here. We don't believe you're the root of all evil or all problems. You know, you're going to be the reason why we succeed and, and thrive and flourish. Um, and then in places like San Francisco, zoning laws make building new housing basically impossible, which keeps supply artificially low, which obviously drives prices up. And even during even after COVID, I mean, prices dropped, but not still not that much. I mean, a one bedroom is still in kind of a Icky area is still going for like 26, 2700. That's not a big drop in my opinion. Um, and uh, whereas in Florida, I mean, and again, in Miami in particular, you see high rises popping up all over the place. I mean, some, I mean, it's not uncommon to just build a, a, another 50, 60 story apartment building. I mean, it just, you don't have the nimbyism there that you do in Florida. And then of course the taxes, I mean, zero state taxes in Florida, 13.3% as the upper bound tax rate in California. I don't know what else needs to be said about that one. Right. Yeah. I mean, you've got like Mayor Suarez in Miami is talking about, you know, wants to be the new head of crypto and is talking about, oh, the Bitcoin miners are getting thrown out of out of uh, China. Have them come to Miami. Right. Yeah. I mean, exactly. And it's like, you know, I don't boy, I, I do think, you know, I do. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very, very bullish on states like Florida and Texas, which I would never have said that three to five years ago. No way. Um, and I'm very bearish, unfortunately, on California. Like at the end of the day, you know, we reap what we sow. And I think it's so important to foster innovation, not look at it as the root of all evil, not look at it as the reason why there's homelessness and crime everywhere. Um, you know, because I'll tell you this right now I mean, the tech scene is exploding in Miami and they don't have anywhere near the crime rate that, um, you know, San Francisco does, for example. Right. Um, and so it's not the root of all evil. It's actually where innovation needs to thrive. And you know what? Um, you know, uh, you know, kudos to Florida for for taking advantage of, of the situation and, um, you know, for understanding, you know, what entrepreneurs like myself want. We want to be welcomed. We want to be given opportunities to thrive. We want access to venture capital. We want access to talent that we can hire. Uh, we don't want to be nickel and dimed on every tax and business registration, and then and then be thrown under the bus in the media. Um, you know that it's all our fault and stuff like that. Um, it's just, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's a, it's very very interesting. It's going to be very interesting over the next five years um, how some of that geographical dynamics I think plays out. Um, so obviously you're seeing it, you know, firsthand with the investments that you're making. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, sports. So, uh, obviously since you're in Massachusetts for our audience, you are a, uh, diehard Patriots, uh, Celtics and Red Sox fan. Uh, so we I were try not to discriminate on titles. We just have so many of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, so obviously, you know, my Bucks won uh, a couple weeks ago. The title is amazing. Congratulations. That was a yeah. big deal, man. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, is that like, um, as I kind of talked to you about, you know, after it happened, I just, I think it was just, first of all, it was the best sports moment in my life, even though I've seen the Packers win a couple of Super Bowls. And I do, I, I do think you should tell the, uh, the story of you going to the Patriots Super Bowl back in 2015. Um, yeah. But I think all the circumstances leading up to me going, to that game um, and seeing it firsthand in person uh, with the city going crazy and the Deer District as crazy as it was. And, um, you know, Giannis basically going out with what looked like a season ending injury, you know, a week and a half before that, um, just all the circumstances that got to that point, I think just made it all that much sweeter for me. Um, so it was definitely for me, the best sports moment of my life. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's, this is why 
this is why we do what we do. Yes, we do betting on sports, which adds a whole other layer and element to it. But I mean, the whole reason I got in sports in the first place is, is because of the fandom of the teams that I followed as a kid and putting my heart and soul and blood, sweat and tears into following them, you know, all these years and to see it culminate with a, a title and a championship. I mean, this is what it's all. That's why you follow sports. It's for titles. I believe titles uh, usurps everything. You could win one title and suck for the next 20, 10 years. And that's better than being pretty good or being even really good and not winning a title at all. So, yeah. um, yeah, you have obviously seen a lot of titles, but you, you mentioned to me, um, you know, last week that you had actually seen the, uh, Patriots Super Bowl win over the Seahawks, uh, February, 2015 in person. Um, just tell everyone what that was like. Cause that was a pretty cool story that you mentioned. It was pretty awesome. I mean, like you, I've been a Patriots fan my entire life. So I was there in the seventies and eighties when it was the old Schaefer stadium, and they were just awful. They couldn't make the playoffs. We went through coach after coach. Even the Parcells years, we got to a Super Bowl. We got killed by your Green Bay Packers. Yeah. Um, and so in 2015, I had some friends that worked for the Patriots. So when they got to the Super Bowl, I was able to get face value tickets through the club, which was great. And uh, my wife and I went. And we went to Phoenix to see the game. And I think it was, you know, selfishly, even if I wasn't a Patriots fan, I think that was probably one of the best Super Bowls ever played. Just pound for pound. Both teams played their hearts out. It was back and forth, lead changes. I think Brady might have had the greatest fourth quarter I've ever seen of a quarterback. But the game itself was awesome. Um, but what made it special, to your point, was, my you know, there's 15 seconds left in the game, and they're on the two-yard line, and everybody knows Marshawn Lynch just getting the ball, and they're going to run it in and win the title. And my wife says to me, I got to go to the, the restroom. And I'm like, you're not going anywhere. She's like, what do you mean I'm not going anywhere? I said, you're not going anywhere. Sit down. It's not over. So she sits down. And then the next play, Malcolm Butler picks off Russell Wilson. And she looks at me and I'm like, it's just never over until the end. And what made it great was I saw my team win the biggest title in the world with my wife. I, it, it was just, it was unbelievable. And it made it really special because we had the fortune of getting tickets to the after party with the team. And it was at the team hotel and every ballroom was full of different artists. So you go in one ballroom and be Darius Rucker playing. The next ballroom had Flow Rider. The next ballroom had Pitbull. And the audience was all Bostonians, like famous actors, like the Wahlbergs were there and all the guys from New Kids on the Block. It was pretty cool. And um, it was just an unbelievable story, except at 4.30 in the morning, my wife's standing next to me and Flow Rider's on stage with Gronk dancing. And she's like, honey, we've been up for like 18 hours. I've got to go to bed. I'm like, but honey, Flow Rider's dancing with Gronk. <laughs> it's like, we're never <laughs> going to see this again. And it was just, it was one of the greatest nights of my life because I got to share it with her and it was my team. So I can very much appreciate what you saw a few weeks ago in Milwaukee, which must have just been life-changing. Yeah, it really was. Um, and I talked about the story of how it all flowed and went together and uh, happened uh, on the last podcast. So I won't bore everyone with that, but I would just say that you know, kind of what I said a minute ago is like, these are the moments of why you are a sports fan in your life. You know, for in my, in, in my case here, I've been a Bucks, I've been a Bucks fan since 1988. So being able to have, uh, you know, that culmination moment when you, when you think in the nineties and the two thousands, you ain't ever going to win anything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it is bleak. And honestly, same thing with the Brewers too. I mean, they've made the playoffs the last three years. Um, and prior to 2008, they hadn't made the playoffs in 26 years. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, that has also, you know, started to turn around, which has been pretty remarkable to see. I'd love, would love to see them win a, a title too. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. And, and then what's interesting on the sports betting side, like, so you, you end up being a fan your whole life, but you know, then you see this opportunity where you can actually bet on something, you know, 
and something that is familiar to you. And sure. I, I mean, this is a little bit of a side topic, but I, I, I feel the kind of need to bring it up here. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. You know, we have the ability for or, or consumers or, or anybody over the age of 18 has the ability to sign up for a Robinhood account, start trading stocks that they may or may not have any idea on, but they can't place a bet on their favorite team that they probably know the jersey number of every single player and the stats of all their players better than they know any kind of, you know, financial performance metrics of companies that they're investing in. It really, to me, and I'm glad that the, the trend is changing, but I want it to go faster, of course. It's it's silly. It's ridiculous that you can sit and basically gamble and bet on stocks, but you can't bet and gamble on, on sports teams. And so, um, again, it's changing. We're now 27 states that have legalized sports betting, and it's, the tide is turning, and it's on the way. But, you know, I think it's I, I like the Wire Act is silly. That needs to go. There needs to be some federal legislation of sports betting. The rest of the states need to just suck it up and make it happen. Um, you know, and plus the entertainment factor, obviously, you know, too. So um, sure. hopefully this trend just continues to, to accelerate, um, not just for us, but just also for consumers to be able to have that option. They know they know what's best uh, for their money. Well, I think the, the peer pressure element is starting to t stem the tide, Mark. I mean, Massachusetts, for example, last week uh, got it through the House, which is a big step. Now it goes to the Senate. And it's because Massachusetts is just getting crushed because everywhere around us, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Connecticut, there's legalized sports betting. So people can go 10 miles in either direction and place a bet, but they can't do it in Massachusetts. So this is a hundreds of millions of dollars a year in tax revenue that states like Massachusetts are missing out on. And New York, same thing. So I think now that we're at 27, I wouldn't be shocked if you were closer to 35, 40 states in the next three years. I think it's going to move really fast based on what's happening right now. Yeah, I actually, I actually think in three years, we'll probably be at 45 um, because... I think by then all the states that have had referendums will work their way through. Um, I think we'll get a few holdouts. I think Hawaii will hold out. I think Utah, of course, will hold out. Um, there's a few other states that, you know, just, I don't know, for whatever reason, aren't getting the picture. Uh, there's right. always going to be some small percentage. Uh, but I think all the rest of them, including California, uh, you know, I, I mean, California can never have enough money, enough money, uh, you know, in their coffers here. So, I mean, sure. they're going to they're going to know that they can tax the hell out of this uh, and, uh, you know, make a bunch of money, whether it be, you know, a couple billion a year or more um, in tax revenue. The, the money is there for the taking. Um, and so, yeah, you're going to see states like New York. They were trying to get something passed, but they wanted to tax it too high. Uh, so they'll probably ease back on that a little bit and make it more operator friendly. Uh, but I agree with you. Like the tide is there. The tide is turning. Um, you know, and hopefully, and I would say too, on the innovation side, like hopefully companies like Zensports would come in with fresher technology that's more consumer friendly, um, that gives some of these older school incumbent companies, of which I won't name, you know, a, a real run for it. Um, and, uh, and really, you know, uh, put the best product in front of customers uh, to give them the chance to be entertained in the most fun way possible, uh, you know, from the, sure. from the palm of their hand. So, yeah, it's exciting times. Um, love what we're doing. Great industry to be in. Um, and look, I just want to, you know, to wrap up here, you know, just say thank you so much for not only your support in Zen Sports, um, but also for you being, um, you know, a real, um, you know, real leader in the concept of investing in startups and and really contributing to the technology ecosystem by your um, by your investing and, and and what you're doing and helping companies out. We need we need a lot more Steve Walsh's. Um, so. Man. Keep it up, man. Um, you've been doing a great job and um, excited for uh, our continued relationship and working together. 
It's going to be great, Mark. The next couple of months are going to be tremendously exciting and I'm extremely proud to be on the journey with you and Aton and everybody at the Zen Sports team. It's just been a hell of a lot of fun. And I think the best is yet to come. I really believe that. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, so this concludes our latest episode of the Ball and Chain podcast. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.